Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Um, welcome to the continuation of Styles, episode 390. And we're going to move into the Federal and Empire period. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, probably go back and forth to uh, England, America, and the general characteristics from 1780 to 1850. So just notice about all these period styles, how they overlap. And you know it, it depends. It depends on region. It depends on towns. It depends on country. Um, and don't forget all these styles. When in England, lagged in America from twenty to twenty-five years behind. So. So although English architects after seventeen sixty, were designing new structures, in the neoclassical manner, American builders did not adopt the style to any advanced degree before the revolution began in 1775. The neoclassical movement was the reinterpretation of classical architecture. Ponderous Palladian elements derived from Roman public buildings were abandoned. Inspiration instead came from recent archeological finds, particularly of Roman domestic buildings. A few new dwellings planned in the 1770s indicate some translation of English neoclassicalism in certain details. But economic downturns in certain colonies, as well as in the colonial conservatism, which often venerated the, quote, neat and plain in buildings, prevented acceptance of the movement until after 1782. As late as the early 19th century, an important English architect in the United States, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, complained about the craftsmen who were still tied to the traditional styles of that early Georgian period. So after about 1783 and the conclusion of the American Revolution, some wealthy merchants in Providence, Rhode Island, and in other cities built houses that still reflected earlier Georgian taste. However, some leaders of the New Republic were looking for an, <coughs> excuse me, an architecture that was philosophically appropriate for the nation. Many applauded the work of Robert and James Adams and their followers in England as a suitable model, while others, venerating simple and utilitarian ideals, searched for a style more related to continental European versions of the neoclassicalism and classical revivalisms. The federal or Adamesque style that became familiar by the end of the 1780s, this architecture achieved elegance through attenuated forms, curved or elliptical features, and sophistication of every detail. Polygonal or curvilinear bays concealed hip roofs beyond balustrades. Elongated windows with large panes and thin glazing bars decorated cornices and entry porches within thin, tapered columns in the ancient taste. Rooms tended to be open and airy with occasional use of oval shapes and walls, vaulted or shaped ceilings and flat plaster wall decorations, and by ensuite fireplace surrounds, door surrounds, dados and cornices. Grand rooms were often further embellished by ornamental plaster ceilings and wallpapers with festooned borders.
The Adam Brothers' work was translated to the United States largely through the pattern books of other designers, especially those of William Payne, whose Practical House Carpenter, 1766, and The Practical Builder of 1774, may not have already reached the colonies before the 1780s. The spread of this fashion was also related to the presence of newly arrived craftsmen from England, and especially by the rise of the architect replacing the predominance of the house carpenter of the previous generation. Regional and nationally prominent designers included classically trained aristocrats such as Charles Bullfinch in Boston and Gabrielle Manigault in Charleston, and former craftsmen such as Samuel McIntyre in Salem and John McComb in New York. Knowledgeable patrons pressed for the neoclassical style when remodeling their earlier homes. George Washington's changes to Mount Vernon, Virginia in the 1780s being a supreme example. New houses such as Gore Place in Waltham, Massachusetts, and Terrace Row houses in Boston, particularly those designed by Bullfinch reflected the new federal state. A newly concurrent movement in American architecture was the classical revival. This style, usually associated with Thomas Jefferson, rejected the neoclassicalism of the Adam brothers and looked to the French models to the renewed inspiration from Palladio and Roman public buildings. Immigrant architects who were familiar with the later English neoclassicalism, also encouraged by young Jefferson, student, <coughs> students such as Robert Mills of South Carolina and William Strickland of Philadelphia, also began their careers under Jefferson's tutelage. At least one English architect practicing in the United States, however, pursued a pure version of the English Regency. William J. in Savannah, Georgia. The movement pressed on the American classicalism of the more robust sort which relied more on the form than applied detailing. The houses feature round or lunette windows, fan or transom lights, and the predominant one or two-story porticos. They reflect a classicalism of a unique type sometimes termed Roman Revival, but actually a little more individualistic than this would suggest. Followers were versatile enough to eventually embrace the Greek Revival movement as well. Enthusiasm for the simple elegance and monumental, monumentalness of the Greek remains in Italy inspired the Greek Revival movement, although detractors deplored the emphasis on the Greek temple form. Early practitioners who admired the simplicity and functionality of the style included the English architect George Hadfield and the Native American architects such as William Strickland, Ithian Town, and Thomas U. Walter. This period marked the real emergence of Walter and the, his influence on the rather English pattern books. The earliest of these, such as The Young Carpenter's Assistant by Owen Biddle, and the Modern Builder's Guide by Asher Benjamin were based on federal, federal architecture. But Benjamin's work kept pace with, at times, in a series of revisions. The Builder's Assistant in, assistant in 1819, a pattern book by John Havlin, 
with an early attempt to adapt Greek forms to the construction needs of the day. Houses of the Greek Revival Movement reflected the view that the real or imagined Greek temple was the most, per was the most perfect creation ever. They were like block buildings with low-hipped or temple-formed gable roofs and usually featured porticos of single or double height with column or other various orders, including, including Doric and always and especially Ionic with oversized capitals. Detailing on a particular basis on masonry examples could be rather quite austere. Wide cornice trims and some door and window surrounds were decorated in the Greek manner. Frets, keys, and egg and dart moldings were also included. Windows and fan lights and transom lights were no longer rounded but square or rectilinear. Townhouse forms were particularly dependent on columns which were mounted on either side of the doors and entablatures for decorations. Uniform brickwork with clean, narrow joints and stone for lintels and steps added to the handsome simplicity. Inside, the same decorative devices were also applied. Wainscoting was no longer used, but decorative papers were. Carpets and furniture contrasted with the simplicity of architectural ornamentation and door surrounds, ceiling decoration and fireplace surrounds. The Greek Revival style was favored by some prominent patrons until the 1850s, and later still in the vernacular buildings. So let's move to the doors of the Federal and Empire period. In a Federal or Adamesque house, the entrance door provides the main emphasis of the facade. In a high-style house, the addition of a semicircular or elliptical fanlight derived from pattern books identifies the building as classical, revival, or Adamesque. Federal doorways are often framed by pilasters and surmounted by delicate wood carvings of oval patronet or classical motifs. In terrace or row houses, the door architrave might serve as the only exterior ornamentation. Porticos of larger homes gradually increased in size. In the south, they eventually took onto the form of multi-storied galleries. Exterior and interior doors are usually made of pine, with some regional use of maple, poplar, and cypress. Interior doors are frequently grained to look like mahogany. Neoclassical door casings are decorated with wooden tracery and applied structure work. Before the end of the federal period, most doors were six-paneled, sometimes with ovalo moldings. However, Greek Revival doors were usually of the two- or four-panel form, which became standardized through the pattern books of Asher Benjamin and Minard Lafierre. Exterior door moldings, which became heavier, featured classical motifs, pilasters, supported a simple entablature or plain lintel with corner blocks and a central panel. Internal door cases were framed by flat Doric pilasters with classical moldings in grander houses. So let's segue over to the use of windows in the Federal and the Empire, or Empire as some call it, period. Several features distinguish federal windows from those of the preceding colonial period. 
Glazing bars, buttons and mullions that is, are thinner with ovalo-shaped profiles. Glass panes are larger and window heads, often with a central keystone, made from marble, stone or wood, are flat. Entablatures may include delicate, atomesque decoration. The 9 over 9 configuration of panes predominated in many areas until the early 19th century when it was gradually replaced by the 6 over 6 double sashes and sometimes even triple sashes. Adamesque architrave detailing is minimal. However, some windows are set in and in recessed arches for added interest. In grand houses, main floors often have floor-to-ceiling windows. Openings onto balconies, the detailing of elaborate interior surrounds matches that of the doors and fireplace. Late 18th century Palladian windows had delicately molded pilasters and fanlight tracery. Semicircular and oval windows are used on the upper stories. Dormer windows are generally gabled or pedimented. A feature of early Jeffersonian classicalism is the use of round and semicircular lunette windows. As the style progresses to full Greek revival, Window forms became simpler, for example. Palladian windows evolved to rectilinear tripartite forms. Lintels are plain and simple, and central panel and corner blocks being the only embellishment. French doors remain extremely popular. The walls of the Federal and Empire, Empire period. During the Federal period, the greatest change in wall treatment is the elimination of full paneling in fashionable rooms, other than on fireplace walls. The wainscot on the remaining walls is taken to dado level only. The field between the dado and cornice is usually plain plastered with a whitewash finish. In the best houses, the walls of the finest rooms would be prepared and papered. Until the end of the 18th century, wallpapers were often plain but with elaborate festoon borders at cornice level and around the wainscoting and doors. After 1800s, wallpapers were floral and striped. So, and this, <clears throat> and the neoclassical motifs became very common. Houses of the wealthy displayed scenic wallpapers imported from France. Dados and entablatures are decorated with gouge work carved foliage and frets, together with Adamesque applied composition designs. Ancient motifs are featured on the early classical revival walls. The paneling and composition work was often painted or grained to look like mahogany. But the 18, by, or by the 1830s, wainscoting generally had to be eliminated in favor of heavily molded, grained or marbleized skirting boards or baseboards. Walls are painted in terracotta, stone colors, deep pinks or gray, or are hung with wallpapers reflecting the interest in Greek Revival architecture, with cornice friezes either left plain or decorated with anthems in key patterns. So we're going to take a break and we'll come back to finish up the Federal and Empire period. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.